On the 20th of February 2015, a 911 operator got a call from a woman reporting that her adult niece had been tied up and gagged and they needed to get round to her house immediately. Police pulled up to the house and found Samantha at the door. She'd managed to escape her restraints with the help of her auntie and was now standing in the doorway answering the officer's questions. Samantha had been subjected to a terrifying assault where she'd been tied up, her sweatshirt cut off of her and her husband was brutally pistol whipped in front of her before being driven off by those home invaders. But as the police officers started gathering evidence from around the house and listening to Samantha's story, they realised that there were more questions being raised than answers and the person who had those answers was very close to home. This is Red Rum, stories about the true victims of crime. This show is made from various source documents listed in the show notes. I use news archives, documentary footage and court documents and so the episodes are accurate to the source materials I can find. Samantha answered the police officer's questions while she was standing at the front door, dressed in a shirt she'd just grabbed after one of the home invaders had cut her shirt off with a knife. She told the officers her husband had been abducted right out of their house. Samantha had met her husband, Ernie Ibarra Jr., around six years ago at a tattoo shop. She was 19 years old and had two young twins. She was a single mother at this point when she met Ernie, who was known by everyone as Dagan. And so, once they started dating, their relationship progressed quickly and they ended up getting married, with Dagan playing the role of dad to Samantha's two children. Things were financially tough. Samantha didn't work. She was hoping to make big money on her YouTube channel, Simply Maniac, or by becoming an actor. And Dagan was working two jobs to try and support the family. In the daytime, he was working running bat manufacturing machines. And at nighttime, he was working at a pizza shop. The pair wanted more children together. And so over the following few years, they had another three. Meaning that by the time this horrific abduction happened, Samantha and Dagan had five children, and those five children were all asleep in the house when the abduction had taken place. Samantha said that she'd woken up that night when she'd heard a noise, and she said the second she opened her eyes, one of the men grabbed her and pulled her out of bed. The same man then tied her up, all the while holding a knife to her throat. They then dragged her downstairs to where her husband was at and told Dagan to face her. She said that when Dagan refused to face her, they had slapped her and then Dagan did turn around. One of the men said, quote, I thought that would get your attention and then went on to ask if he wanted them to kill Samantha and if not, then he needed to tell them the truth. But Dagan insisted that he couldn't help them he didn't know anything, he didn't know what they wanted. One of the officers pushed this, trying to get any identifying information on the men who had done this, and that's when Samantha revealed that she had heard a name, but that's all the information she got. She said that the man's name was Luke. She went on to say that they took a knife and cut her grey sweatshirt off whilst they shouted at her. One of the officers then asked her to identify that jumper so they could bag it for evidence, which they did. 
Samantha gave more details, saying that the intruders had taken Dagan's phone, and so the quick-thinking officer immediately got on his radio and asked for an emergency trace to be made. Samantha then said that the intruders had cut off some of Dagan's hair, threatening her, going on to say that they were doing that so that she'd have something to remember him by. Whilst the officer was in the middle of taking Samantha's statement, some information came through on the radio. The location on Dagan's phone that he'd asked for earlier had been tracked and it was currently located in Pittsburgh. And so the officer asked Samantha if she knew anyone at all in Pittsburgh, but she said that no, she didn't and she had no idea why Dagan's phone would be there. Interestingly, soon after that ping came through, they lost the live location of the phone, meaning that someone had turned it off right at that moment. Meanwhile, the rest of the investigating team were making their way through the house and one of the officers commented on the state of what they were seeing. Firstly, the fact that there wasn't a whole lot of blood for what the officer would expect if someone had been brutally pistol whipped. And on top of that, the actual state of the house was pretty horrific. Considering five young children were living there, they found some really grim living conditions like rubbish, clothes, and there were feces all about the place. The children themselves, who were found having slept through the whole ordeal upstairs in the bedroom, were dressed in dirty clothes. One of the officers commented on police body cam about how odd it was that the intruders were able to sneak up to the bedroom, up some pretty steep and creaky stairs, stating that they must have been familiar with the layout of the house. It's likely they'd, at the very least, been there before. And so, the investigation turned inwards. The officers needed to know who would have had reason to abduct Dagon. Samantha said there might be someone. She knew that Dagon's dad was in with a rough crowd, and they could be after him for money. He'd been involved in drugs, and she knew there was a lot of money. And then, something struck her. When the intruders had Dagon downstairs, one of them had said to him that he needed to come up with $20,000. Now at this point, Samantha was convinced this whole thing must be something to do with Dagon's dad and his drug connections, and she made sure that the police knew that. But this whole time that Samantha had been answering questions and giving her statements as to what had happened earlier that night, the investigating team had been doing their own work. They had a lot more information and so they went on to ask Samantha a few more specific questions. Firstly, they asked her why she'd called her mum first on that night rather than 911. And Samantha said that she just dialed the first thing she could with her nose. Now the officer pressed her asking why she dialed her mum's number, but Samantha said she didn't. She had just pressed the first number she had saved on her phone, which happened to be her mum's. But it was becoming evident that the officers weren't really believing Samantha's story. And on top of this, they'd just received information from Samantha's phone records that would help to prove that not only was Samantha lying, but she'd been an active participant in her own husband's abduction. The phone records showed that during that initial questioning of Samantha back at her and Dagan's house, after the officer had radioed for that urgent phone ping on Dagan's phone, Samantha had taken her phone and she had texted someone in Pittsburgh 
quote, kill Dake's phone, shut that shit down. And then a short while later, she texted again saying, quote, ditch phone, move. And it turned out that Samantha had called her mum first, telling her what had happened as a means of stalling the initial investigation. She knew that her mum would be at home miles and miles away and it was going to take her a while to get to Samantha's house. What she didn't count on was that her mum had called her sister, so Samantha's auntie, and got her to head straight over to Samantha's house to go and help her. And that's how the police managed to arrive so quickly. Samantha, therefore, didn't end up doing that thorough crime scene prep that she likely had planned to do. And this was also probably why that grey sweatshirt the officers recovered from the scene had no cut marks on it. It doesn't make a huge amount of sense that she didn't just leave that part out of the story that she told police. She was the only one who gave her version of the abduction and the home invasion, and so she could easily have changed that detail, but perhaps it was a prepared thing she'd decided on and she just couldn't change it before, or didn't change it before talking to the police. Or maybe it slipped her mind completely, we don't know. But what we do know is that the crime scene that and the evidence that came from that was not matching up with Samantha's version of events. And once the officers started more in-depth questioning of Samantha, of course her story began to change. Now firstly, she had said that she had gone to bed at 11pm, but when she was at the station, she changed that to midnight. And by now, she was giving quite a lot of specific details that seemingly had nothing to do with her husband's abduction. In fact, she didn't seem to be bothered at all about the fact that Dagan was still missing. And instead, at one point, she actually calls her mum from the interrogation room, from the interview room, and she puts in a food order and asks her mum to bring her some food. During one of the many interviews, the officer reveals to Samantha that they had found Dagan's blood and it was in his vehicle. And this made Samantha visibly uncomfortable. And the officer went on to say that this didn't make any sense and then questioned why the intruders would use Dagan's vehicle to transport him rather than their own. If they'd planned this, they just wouldn't do that. When it became clear to Samantha that the officer just wasn't believing her story, and he outwardly says that he thinks that she's lying, she begins to panic. Then she says to the officer that if she did know something, if she did know who took her husband and why they did it, then even if she hadn't said anything because she was trying to protect her children, wouldn't that make her an accomplice? And she actually asks that question. And the investigating officer looks at her and says, no, it absolutely wouldn't which isn't exactly true, but this is an American case and misleading a suspect is actually allowed. And obviously, when Samantha was told this, her mind probably went straight to how she was going to get out of this. And so she told the person questioning her that she was scared of the people who did this. And then she went on to say exactly what had happened in her own words. She said that she was venting to one of her girlfriends about the problems that she and Dagan were having as a married couple. And when she was telling this girlfriend their problems, another person was in the room who spoke about how much of a problem he had with this. He didn't like to hear that a man was treating a woman like this and said that Dagan shouldn't be treating Samantha like that and shouldn't be hitting her and so he would deal with it. 
it's important to say here that there's no evidence per se of Dagan hitting Amanda. Obviously, we don't know what goes on behind closed doors, but given the information that comes out later, there's just no way of proving this. Samantha swore she didn't know the man's real name, just what he went by on Facebook, which was John Rebel. Now, at this point, Samantha has said over and over again that she didn't actually think he was gonna do anything and she wasn't taking any of this seriously. But that's not all she knew. She added that John had a friend called Octavius Rhymes, who she referred to as Tay and he may have been involved and that there was a third man with them and she was pretty sure that she had previously seen this person with John and after some prodding, Samantha actually gave up the third man's name. First, she said she just knew him as uh, Jojo, but she quickly added that she knew his name was Jose. Jose Ponce had been previously convicted of sexual assault of a child, and authorities believe this happened to at least three children over a 28 year period. This guy is really bad. I've also seen it reported that Jose was John's brother-in-law, as well as that he was his cousin, but I couldn't actually corroborate either version, but it's clear that they did know each other. So that morning, a little before 10 a.m., officers managed to arrest both John and Jose and began to question them immediately. The officer uh, questioning John goes straight in playing good cop, telling him how he knew John was just a bystander and that he needed to know where Dagan was at. To be honest, it didn't take much. John didn't really argue or deny the abduction. In fact, he agreed that he had been there with Jose and that yes, there was a third person there, but he was a bit hesitant and he didn't actually give up his name at first, just saying that he never heard what his name was. But despite this, John then did agree to take officers to where Dagon was at. John directs the officers to an area of woodland at Sand Crossing in Camp County, Texas. And whilst he's handcuffed in the police car, he points out exactly where they need to go to find Dagon. They do manage to locate Dagon's body and it's clear that he's been dead for some time. He had been shot in the head. John really gave up a lot of the information they needed. He admitted to talking to Samantha about her allegedly abusive husband, Dagon, but quickly added that he had never agreed to kill him. In fact, he said the mastermind behind the attack was Samantha, and that they'd spoken about getting rid of Dagon the night before the murder. He backed this up by saying that he'd even looked after Samantha's children and taken them to Walmart on that same evening to go and buy food. And the Walmart CCTV footage showed clearly that John had taken the children to that shop. John went on to admit that he and the two other men, Jose and Octavius, had smoked some meth before they went to the house and abducted Dagon. And then they drove him out to the wooded area. Now, John says that he had gone back to the vehicle and as he was making his way there, he heard this popping sound and he said he assumed at that point that it was a gunshot, but he insisted that he wasn't involved in the actual murder. Now, in the other interview room, Jose is claiming that John was the person who actually pulled the trigger 
and he said that he'd only ever met Samantha once and it was just one day before the murder and that does actually seem like that was a true account in terms of him only having known Samantha for a day. Doesn't make a huge amount of sense then why he would agree to do this or why he would even agree to go, but that is true. Now, John had said that the gun would be at Jose's house seeing as he was the one who actually pulled the trigger. And so the police actually go to search and after they arrive there, it takes a little while of searching the surrounding areas, but they do eventually manage to find the gun and it is hidden right by a tent outside the house. Jose said that that gun belonged to John and he must have hidden it there at Jose's place. But Jose's fiance later confirmed that Jose had given her that gun as a gift. The third person involved, who both of the men and Samantha to a point, they were all resistant to give up his name, was Octavius Rhymes. He was also eventually arrested and questioned, and he did admit to being present when the murder happened, but he swore he didn't know anyone was planning a murder. Even so, both John Sanford and Jose Ponce were sentenced to 50 years in prison after they pleaded guilty to aggravated kidnapping and another 50-year sentence for the murder, with their sentences running concurrently. Octavius was sentenced to 75 years for murder and 23 years to aggravated kidnapping. Although there's obviously quite a difference in sentence length, I think that may be to do with the plea deal of the accused and what each person entered, because it's never been proven who actually pulled the trigger and no one has taken responsibility. Of course, John said it was one of the other two and Jose said it was one of the other two and Octavia said he wasn't even involved in that part. Samantha, who was aged just 27 at the time of her trial, was sentenced to 99 years for murder as well as a 50-year sentence for kidnapping and there to be served consecutively. One thing I find just baffling with this case is that these three men, who were obviously all troubled in their own ways, agreed to kidnap, beat up, and likely ahead of time knew they were gonna murder this man who they didn't even know that well, or at all. They weren't getting paid, which we know is one of the number one reasons as to why people murder. And they just they just didn't seem to have a great deal to gain for such a risky and horrific crime. Because all three men point the finger elsewhere, I don't think we'll ever get to the bottom of the reason why. But sadly, because of one woman's decision and three men's actions, there are now five young children who are going to have to grow up without a mum or a dad. Thank you for watching this episode of Red Rum. If you're not yet subscribed and you want to be, click the subscribe button. Um, if you have a case suggestion, whack it down below and I'll add it to my list. And if you enjoy these videos, please consider clicking that thumbs up button. It's really nice for me to see which videos you guys uh, resonate with more so I can try and research more cases similar to them. And thank you so much if you commented your favourite horror film on the last video. Um, or the video before last, last week. I have a huge list now and I'm making my way through them. I'm also re-watching uh, some of the classics, so I know we've gone past Halloween right now, but I am such a huge fan of horrors and thrillers. So last week I watched the original Hellraiser 
and the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake. And I'm now moving on to Stephen King's Misery, which is a viewer suggestion. So thank you for that. I love Stephen King's books and films, so I'm well up for watching that. If you have uh, any of your own suggestions, then pop them down below. And other than that, I'll see you next week for another episode of Red Rum. Bye. <laughs>